Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Welcome back to another incredible episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. I am your host, Daniel DiPiazza, and today we are sitting down with my friend, Matt Wilson. Matt is an incredible entrepreneur, and you know, the funny thing about it is, Matt was the first one to give me, uh, well, one of my big shots at writing online. Back in the day, in the late 2010s, early 2010s actually, Matt was the owner uh, with his co-founder, Jared, of Under 30 CEO. And basically, they had a huge content platform that allowed visionaries, thinkers, entrepreneurs, hustlers, freelancers like me at the time to get up and talk about what we were doing and share our thoughts with an engaged community. And from that platform, I really got a voice and I really started to blow up. And, you know, as luck would have it and as fate would have it, I actually ended up buying that platform a few years later, just based off of all the success I'd had as a result, uh, partially of their help. And, um, you know, it's been, a, you know, love ever since between Matt and I. And, you know, now what Matt is doing is he's running a travel company that's actually spun off of his original content platform. His travel company is Under 30 Experiences. And what I love about him, though, is to see his progression over the years. I've seen him go from someone who is just smart to now what I consider fully, uh, fully woke. In that, I mean, just someone who really understands the nuances of what's happening in the world today. And this conversation that we're talking about spans uh, from a little bit of politics to crypto to privacy to some jujitsu. It's a conversation between friends. This is something that we would talk about, you know, in our private time. And I thought it would be great to bring you in because we share a lot of interesting viewpoints and opinions and philosophies and theories on what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic, with what's going on in society, and draw some cultural insights from those things. So sit back and enjoy this. It's a fantastic conversation between two guys who are just trying to figure things out, and I bet you you can find something in common as well. Check it out. Okay, I'll start this off by by uh, by prefacing it with uh, a conversation I just posted on Instagram before we chatted today. And I was saying you know, I was in the grocery store and uh, I didn't have I didn't have my mask on in the grocery store, and I felt that that sinking feeling uh, first in my head and then in my gut of um, either it was shame or guilt or fear around. Uh, not being part of the, you know, the norm that's been set for us now, uh, which it's a new norm. And there's programming that's already happened and has continued to happen as a result of, you know, the health scare that the world is going through. And I want to just start off with talking about the programming that's been happening to, to communities around the world. What do you think that's going to mean for us long-term? I know we're jumping in the deep end. Oof. All right. I will start, uh, I'll start by saying I'm not anti-vax, anti-mask, um, yeah, you know, not. <laughs> not a, not a lawyer, a financial advisor, any of these things. Um, but what I would 
what, what I am most interested in, and it's just been fascinating watching all this, is that nobody wants to live and let live anymore. And that's understandable because we're talking about a virus that can spread amongst uh, amongst our uh, communities, whether they want to, whether they want it to or not. So yeah, I wanted to to preface all of that. And you're going to have to restate the original question. So because we jumped right into it. I mean, the, look, yeah, we jumped right into it. The program has already happened. What do you think the result of this this, I'm going to call it a fear-based programming, is going to be on our communities long-term. Do you think it's just going to go away after the virus is cleared, or is this going to have a long-lasting effect on how we look at ourselves? So, of course, it's going to have some type of long-lasting effect. Um, The polarization that we see in our communities Mm -hmm. is probably not going to get much better. Yeah, it's this is people are going to be scared to go out for a long time. I mean, they still kind of are. Um, I was just in the drive-through at CVS, and I, I, you know, I just I, I like to observe these things, and I think, okay, so how many of these people in this drive-through are getting a COVID test? How many of these people are actually scared to go in? How many of the people in the mm-hmm. the long lineup of cars are um, immunocompromised, so that they would rather not? Who in the line forgot their mask? The line was pretty long. I had a lot of time to think, you know, and so just seeing all these, how our micro behaviors are being affected by the macro, um, these macro changes. And I think that's Mm -hmm. probably what we'll get really get into later to, you know, later in our conversation or, or right now, because we're trying to jump in. Yeah. Things are going to change. And as you can probably hear my voice, I can't quite wrap my head around it. And of course, the United States was built on freedom, right? And so there's so many people out there who are struggling with the fact that there is a certain amount of collaboration that needs to happen, a so- certain amount of social coordination that needs to happen, uh, which is very difficult in such a divided time in history. And so is this going away? No. Hopefully we can come back to the middle. I know that you and I uh, have both tried to find a, a middle way, if you will, on this. And I spend a lot of time actually trying to understand my cousins in Michigan who are QAnon believers. And then I also try to understand my own biases, right? Like, I don't think I'm ever going to be as left as I was during the Trump administration because I just found that so repulsive in how in what was going on there. And now trying to find this middle ground, hopefully there will be a lot of people um, who do find a middle ground, uh, maybe a color purple, uh, and can, as you probably hear in the media, reach across the aisle and talk to people on the other side and find common grounds uh, with our neighbors and, and all of that. Uh, that's, that's so important if we're all going to get along here. So there's going to be a lot of fear continued. Um, unfortunately, I do believe that governments try to rule by fear. And mm-hmm. this is all something we had to figure out over the last 
year and a half uh, or, or more than, than that now at this point when it comes to COVID and what this means going forward. So uh, I know maybe some of that sounded wishy-washy, but um, yeah, I think trying to get more people to come to a level-headed uh, middle ground, again, as I said before, I think is, is really important. Um, and there's so many macro things going on, but I think there's opportunity I would like to point out for, and I don't want to talk about politics the whole time, but as just trying to frame personally how we think of the world, uh, I can see a lot of smart things about being fiscally conservative while being socially liberal. And there's no candidates for that. You don't fit in when you talk like that because nobody wants to talk to you. So, uh, but my hope is that I can be someone just in my community and, and amongst my family, et cetera, uh, and just talking to you that people will maybe say, oh yeah, there are things on both sides that make some sense. We're not so uh, different as we might actually think. Yes, our freedoms are being infringed upon. And yes, we should also help out uh, our neighbors and love each other. Does that make any sense? No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, and I think that most people, if they were able to uh, intuitively understand the feelings of their neighbor, we would be a lot closer in alignment than we think we are just through expressing ourselves through media, because media is a very much of a snapshot of, uh, of an extreme, uh, you know, extreme point of view that's designed to create buzz. Um, you know, I also think too, that like, with regard to, uh, with regards to like identity politics and uh, just talking about liberal conservative, what do those words even mean? You know, I noticed that a lot of the, my friends who were liberal before are now moving towards conservative and the people who are conservative are more moving towards liberal or vice versa. Like what's happening is, you know, before uh, conservative used to mean, you know, basically the, the liberals who used to mean complete social freedom are now moving towards social constraint. And a lot of the conservatives are now moving towards freedom. And so those, those terms are kind of interchangeable. Like for instance, you know, you look at states like Florida and Texas, where they're typically seen as conservative states. And the word in our minds conservative kind of means like, um, you know, uh, not budging, sticking to the old grounds, you know, um, and, you know, basically not allowing change. And we look, we think of liberal, at least a lot of people think of liberal as like the most open-minded, but now we're seeing that liberal politics has, is what's driven us towards this, towards this idea that everyone needs to get behind the idea of uh, mass vaccination mandates and uh, universal health constraints. Whereas a lot of these more conservative leaning areas of at least the United States are actually more open in some ways. So the liberal states are closing down and the conservative states are opening up. And so it's an interesting paradigm. And, you know, I was saying the other day, I was even listening to a podcast and I, uh, you know, because of the fact that each side is branded so well, I would look at someone like Steve Bannon and say, there's nothing I would ever agree with him on. And yet I see him on a podcast, listen to him and he's making a lot of sense you know, he's one of the most conservative people that you'll see. And I'm not saying I'm a Steve Bannon fan or a Trump fan or not, but there are, if, if I can agree with things that Steve Bannon is saying, then there are obviously things on both sides of the aisle that are worthy of listening to. So yeah, it's, it's interesting time to, to, uh, to be an adult. Like, I feel like, I feel like, you know, uh, this is not the, this is not the continuation of the status quo of our childhood. 
uh, adulting got real in the last uh, couple of years. Adulting got real. You, know, <laughs> you had a kid, you're in the middle of a global pandemic, an economic meltdown, uh, a, a complete revolution on the internet. A lot of things are happening. Man, all, all of those things. It's, it's just, again, I think each day we're struggling to wrap our heads around the new normal. And one thing that I'm proud about, you, you mentioned uh, the media and politics and all that. Pretty much after November 2020, I decided that I was going to stop listening to, I stopped really reading the news. And uh, unless it had to do with COVID, of course, which uh, has directly to do with my job Um, and financial news, which is just the interest of where things are going. So maybe that completely contradicts myself, but no political news because it was so, it was so toxic and, um, and look, I watched in through 2018, 19, 20, I watched a lot of John Oliver and Colbert, and it was kind of my time to veg out, but actually kind of catch up on what was going on in the world, um, slash, like, even you watch Jimmy Kimmel through those years, and it was a lot just on on politics, of course, and, and mm-hmm. Trump was such an easy uh, guy to make fun of, such right? Those, those are no, three yeah. comedians. Um and I don't want people to think that's the only place I get my news because it's certainly not. Um, but once I did away with that, I felt so much less angry. Um, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and uh, I also right find myself in the same space now, just listening to all the FUD, the fear and doubt, uncertainty and doubt that we're hearing about right regulations around cryptocurrency, which is my, uh, one of my many passions, of course, but that starts to boil my blood because it's mainly people who are scared of technology moving Mm -hmm. forward that, oh my God, this is, we need to regulate these things. These are all shadowy super coders that are uh, going (laughs) to, you know, this is, but this is the kind of thing that Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren is saying. Now that's a direct quote from her, which like broke shadowy super coders. It basic those memes basically broke (laughs) crypto Twitter. They people thought it was so hilarious and made I'll I'll put us in put myself in the camp. I'm not a coder, but made us right the crypto community sound so cool. Uh, But people are just scared of what this means. And security laws were made in the 1930s, uh, hello, they need to be updated. Um, yeah. and, and I just want to say that I'm in this because I believe in code, in computer code, more than I believe in politicians and people and investment bankers and bailouts. So, but I find myself getting just as agitated about that as well. So, you know, I, I, mean, I, I dropped some old habits and picked up new ones. Two bookmarks on that. You know, uh, one, I am a fan of the daily show. I liked it when John Stewart is doing it. I think Trevor Noah has his own great spin on it. But one thing that annoyed me about that show, and, and honestly, I think a lot of times Comedy Central has better news reporting than CNN. I think that's true. I think they're more honest in a lot of ways, but even with Comedy Central and, uh, Granted, it again, it's a comedy channel, so take it with a grain of salt. But I, I just always thought that because Trump was such an explosive president and such an explosive political figure and such an easy target, they didn't actually do a lot of due diligence to, I'm going to say, give him a fair portrayal. You know, it doesn't mean that I support him, or, and I'm always prefacing it, but I'm like, I'm not a Trump fan. But it's just I look at some of the some of the 
the antagonistic views where there's literally nothing that he could have done that they would have said, good job. You know, even if he was legitimately trying to do pass something, they would have found some other way to spin it. And that to me, obviously it's, again, it's, it's a, it's a satirical show. So I guess they're supposed to do that, but I find that that's the same with CNN. I mean, it's the same with, you know, Washington post, or, you know, it's like a lot of news outlets uh, don't even have real critical journalism anymore. Uh, it's mostly just based on, you know, the the politics of the people funding that organization or the existing historical stance of that publication or, you know, a lot of factors. And I, I think that it's skewing our ability as individuals to make good uh, judgment calls. I mean, you know, I even look back at like the I look back at, um, you know, last year when they were just absolutely annihilating Trump for not wearing a mask. Uh, and the, the news media was just destroying him. And now you look at it and you say, is is a mask really helpful? I mean, you, you know, you, you say, well, if you think about how small the particles of a virus are and you think about how big the weave of a mask is, if you're not wearing an N95 mask, you know, which is like a surgical standard mask, is it really actually useful? Is it actually medically viable? And um, again, looking at just the the overwhelming health factors of comorbidities with COVID. It's like the biggest health factors are lifestyle choices that lead to uh, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And those are the biggest indicators of a potential fatal interaction with COVID-19. And so, you know, is the mask really that useful? So on the one hand, you can look at that and say, well, maybe it's not. On the other hand, you can kill Trump for not wearing it. And there's this, this, this cognitive distance there. Yeah. I I would even say let's, let's move beyond politics for the conversation, right? And <laughs> let's leave Trump in the past, Please. although he could be in our in our future. He could um, be in our he's in the uh, rear view and in the headlights. Uh, I will <laughs> comment and say I think N95 masks are, are a great idea. And I've seen the research, right, from people who find these studies that say masks don't work as well. And to me, I can throw on a mask and it doesn't really bother me. And I want to be respectful of the people around me, especially if people are immunocompromised and can't get the vaccine for some reason. And I encourage people to look into this and to uh, why people will get uh, an immune, re- a severe immune reaction from the vaccine. And that's usually an underlying thing, not one of uh, what you just mentioned, but yeah, something autoimmune things, autoimmune things, right? Lyme disease, it could be toxic mold, etc. Um, and so you want to be really careful of those people, especially um, because those people have a right to go out in public as well. Uh, I'm also in the travel business. And so uh, in other places, you don't know who's vaccinated, who has access to the vaccine and who doesn't um, like when we're here in the States and we all know we all have pretty much equal access um, to that. So look, if I, like I went to the library the other day and and I was just looking for a place to work because I don't remember my internet was down or something. They asked me to put a mask on. I was like, I think I'll go to the coffee shop. I don't want to sit here for an hour or two with a mask on. It just was comfortable. It was a warm day. And um and yeah, I, I'm also someone who enjoys personal freedoms like we all do. And I think it's super important. So when people are mandating you to put them on, of course, you're going to get irked. Like it's just part of it. Um, and I also understand they're pri- 
private businesses can do whatever they want. Um, and the other thing that, that uh, I think we should all keep in mind is everyone wants power, right? So we've all probably at this point heard the saying, don't let a good crisis go to waste. This is so <laughs> many politicians' <laughs> time to Wet get. dream. Oh, yeah. And even, even like to switch it back to cryptocurrency and get away from uh, Schmovid here, right? It, that, oh, why do you hear from the SEC and all these other regulatory bodies that we never even heard of? Uh, the, all these acronyms that I'm not even going to attempt because I didn't even know about the FTC's cousin or, or whoever, right? Because they all want, they're like, Ooh, something we can be in the news about, something I can talk about when it comes to my next, uh, you know, these are not even elected folks, they're appointed, um, yep. another yep. feather I can stick in my hat. And so I've also spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what motivates people and incentives as well. So whew, there's a, a lot going on in a crisis as big as this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting too. It's because like there's a there's a crisis going on, and then there's this new whole new set of opportunities. I mean, I think it's interesting that it, you know, for instance, Web 3.0, which was already happening, is I think being accelerated by some of these international crises. So for anyone who's listening, you know, Web 3.0, I kind of think of Web 3.0 as the umbrella under which all this is happening. Web 3.0 is the internet built on blockchain. You know, you had Web 1.0, which was you know. Do, 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 do. you know, you've got mail, like, and I just got to say, we're never going to be back at that place again. And I miss it. I miss when the internet was just exciting, just to be connected. Hey guys, just happy to be here. You know, from, I don't know if you remember, um, you know, AOL chat rooms in the beginning when that was the main way. Of course. <laughs> remember, I mean, and do you remember how, how exciting it was when, when AIM, AOL and the messenger came out and you could instantly message your friends and you couldn't wait to get home to talk to them on the internet. Look, Daniel, that was cute and all, but I will take an NFT drop over the <laughs> AOL Instant Messenger any day. Well, I mean, well, there's no going back, but but it's it's you know because at that time the internet was truly truly new. Now this is a new iteration of a past concept, so we have some frame of reference for it. But even then, I mean, it was you know I remember opening up my grandmother had a, a gateway 2000 that came in one of those cow print boxes and you know that's when AOL had CDs you had to download and they would even send you CDs in the mail like every couple months with their new update it was a great little little gimmick they had and if you didn't know this there are still tens of millions of people who have AOL services on dial-up in the United States and they're all in the middle of the country you know um, and they're just never gonna, they're not they're not checking for the NFT drop I'll tell you that and uh, <laughs> they can't even get on Discord. Um, and and but, we laugh, but that's, I mean, hopefully these people are all 90 years old, right? But they might they're not, not be. They're, they're not. not. That's so we're laughing about it, but this is actually a real, uh, real issue, right? In our, um, in our country. But, uh, but it is funny to, to giggle about it. I, I'll, I'll say, I think I might've told you this. I don't know where I read it at this point, but Web 1.0 was information. Right. What time does uh, what time does the local coffee shop close? Let's go to right. their website. Right. right. Like and people are making so much money building websites that now you just you don't even need a website. You just need like a Twitter account. Right. Web 2.0 was people. And these are this is all, all the big tech 
villains that we're we're thinking about now, like yeah, Zuckerberg, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Okay, yes, and then Web three is the layer of money, and this is going to displace. Uh, I don't know if anybody listening has ever tried to send money overseas, but it is ridiculous and it, ridiculously slow. Uh, it's ridiculously ineffective. Many times your money does not reach the place, and it no. is ridiculously expensive. And uh, please think about all the people who are sending money uh, to the United from the United States, the land of opportunity, where so many immigrants come to work to make better for themselves and their families, and they send it home, and it doesn't arrive, or it gets you know people are are losing. 25% at times or more. Um, oh, so, yeah. you know, but so cryptocurrency has the ability to instantly uh, on a public ledger, right? Where anybody mm-hmm. can go in and audit it and see who you sent money uh, to and all this. see the address. It, exactly. Um, but it's all public. And uh, by the way, the FBI loves that. So, you know, if you want to do something shady, you're doing it in cash uh, because that's always everybody saying, oh, my God, this is like, you know, again, shadowy supercoders building this stuff. And, and sure, yeah, at first there were a lot of cases where uh, Bitcoin and whatever else was used for bad stuff. Um, but the U.S. dollar, I mean, forget it. I, I don't I'm starting to go off on a tangent now. But the point is, Web3 has a lot of solutions, but people are scared of change overall. And there are people who get it right now and are going to invest in it because it's open for anybody to invest in. And those people are going to win big. And then there's going to be the have nots and that that uh, gap is going to continue to widen. Well, if you think about just the the speed of adoption, like the user adoption curve, you know, a couple interesting stats uh, right now, you know, there's roughly 120 to 150 million crypto holders in the world. Uh, now, if you look at that as a fraction of the world's population, we're talking top, you know, first 14 to 15%, something around there. Um, You're still so, so early if you're hearing this. And I know that it seems if if you're already kind of involved in crypto or understand that it is even a thing, you're mad because you didn't get into Bitcoin when it was $5 or $100 or $1,000 or $5,000. And you're like, ah, you know, you might even feel like FOMO is hitting, the train has already left. But I think that a lot of times humans fundamentally lack the perception of scale. And right now, you know, Bitcoin's 55,000, something like that. Um, and it's, it's, we're still so early in the game that even owning small bits of all of this stuff is so important as a fundamental building block in this new layer of financial technology. Like, like you said, there's the element of being able to trade money, you know, instantaneously or mostly instantaneously across large, long distances. And I can't tell you how many times I've had even, even uh, coworkers and employees who I've tried to send money to in, you know, in Israel, for instance, and Chase will just block it and reject it. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, they'll, sh- they'll shut down my whole bank account for sending money to another country, which is, you know, interesting. And, and that's just one different use case. But there's also the idea of, if you look at a, a broader scale, it's like, you know, right now in October, 2021, uh, they've again pierced the debt ceiling in the United States. Uh, we're already kind of upside down. We're about 28 trillion in debt. And I think that's just what's on the books. Our GDP is only about 22 uh, trillion. So we're upside down, we're underwater in that way. And cryptocurrency as a hedge against inflation is a real thing. Um, you know, it's like you have your bank account and it's supposedly backed, you know, and insured by the FDIC by up to up to like $200,000 or whatever. But it, I, it makes me wonder how safe really is that money from inflation or from, you know, honestly, just 
being taken out of your account. There are lots of other countries who've uh, experienced this where, you know, when the government needs to pay debts, the, the, the country can legally reach into their account and just appropriate funds. That's a thing that happens. Cryptocurrency, while it is going to be taxed if you're going to turn it into dollars, it's its own ecosystem, its own community. And more and more businesses, individuals, and communities are extra, you know, changing value just in these various types of crypto that's outside the reach of any particular nation state. And I think that is very powerful. And that's one of the reasons why governments are resisting it. Because since it's written, you know, if we just talk about Bitcoin, you know, it's written in a code that basically can't be broken, changed or altered or intercepted. I mean, there are obviously always going to be people who are trying and maybe they'll be successful. But for the most part, it's outside of the reach of these uh, governments. And that's scary. Not to mention the fact that when we talk about DeFi, and I'm just barfing on you, when we talk about DeFi, you know, the banks want to have as much control as as they can over the monetary system and the policies. And they want to be able to control where the money goes and, you know, who's holding it. And when individuals are able to be the sole holders of their own currency, when they can be their own banks, that's what DeFi is, decentralized finance. The idea that you don't need Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America to hold your money. You can do it yourself. You can get better interest rates. Uh, you don't have to be having people snooping in your accounts. You don't have to wait to transfer things. Way better interest rates. What Infinitely better. better interest Way better. rates. Like Way you better. can earn six, seven percent. Yeah, that point zero zero three. Exactly. On USDC, right? And it's th- mm-hmm. something that is pegged directly yep. to the dollar. It's in- it's incredible. Yeah. So so it makes you think uh, there that's the main reason why they're scared. I mean, I think part of it is that techno fear, the technophobia. Uh, I don't understand this. Another part is, oh, I do understand this. And this is bad for business. Totally. And that's the incumbents. That is absolutely the banking system putting their lobbyists out there and saying, whoa, uh, we our margins are being eroded very fast and there's nothing that we can do about it. And the people in finance are seeing this coming. And mm-hmm. not to mention that, you know, the United States says that there's they're going to um, bring on a uh, we're going to have our own cryptocurrency. Right. <laughs> um, in like four or five years. That's what that's their timeline. This is way too late. You know, China's going to totally I mean, beat them to it. But that is just. Well, sad. first of all, the United States in the past 50 years doesn't have a very good track record of moving on anything quickly when it comes to infrastructure. You know, there's um, when you think about just like how long it takes for us to make decisions, come to a consensus and build things, you know, it would take us 30 years to build a new hospital. We don't, you know, it would take us, you know, 10 years to build a new subway station. Meanwhile, you have China who, you know, f- for whatever, for whatever, uh, you can put whatever like moral or ethical, you know, filter over you want over them. But in terms of infrastructure, they are quick, man. When COVID was happening, they built a hospital in a day or like a, two or three days. You know, they built a subway station in a day because they, they're snapping together prefab pieces and they're just making it happen. Whereas, you know, we would have to, oh, well, there's the labor unions and this has to get approved by this group of people. And then we have to raise the money. Da, 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 da. And, you know, we're slow to the roll. We're slow to the ball. And um, and also, that's brick and mortar. But that's brick and mortar stuff. We're yes. talking about financial <laughs> right. technologies. That right. stuff gets built way faster. Oh, Sorry, I yeah. cut you off. No, no, no. And it's it's like, and also the, the whole purpose of digital currency is decentralization. You don't want the government. That, that's not, that's like, 
<laughs> okay. When I was a kid, I don't know if you remember, there's a shop called KB Toys and there's a toy store. And uh, they had this thing called, called the Kids Bank. And what it was was a financial system. It was like a financial toy used to teach, <laughs> used to teach kids how to deal with money. And the whole idea was it was like a set of checks, basically, and like a ledger sheet. And I'm just remembering this now. And, um, and basically, whenever you made allowance as a kid or if you had some extra money, you would give the money to your parents and uh, you, would you would hold on to it and you would write down the ledger so you knew how much you had. They became the bank and you became the, you know, the customer. And whenever you want to withdraw money, you have to write a check and give it to them. They give you your money back. Well, I did this with my mom. I had $100. <laughs> She's a single mom. I give her the money. Three months later, I said, hey, I want to withdraw some money from the bank. She's like, bank doesn't have any money right now. I'm like, well, hold up, hold up. You know, I, I thought this was safe. I thought this was insured by the bank of mom. And, you know, there's no money there. And I always give her so much shit for that, even to this day. She's like, I'm sorry about parent bank. I've repaid you. But, you know, not only is the government a big parent bank where you can give them money and they might not have it the next day, but also it's the tracking of every dollar. And if they're going to create a digital currency, that's going to make it even easier for them to track every single dollar, which the IRS, we know, is extremely underfunded and inefficient. But as soon as we go digital, they're going to track every transaction and they're going to be at full discretion to take money, to review transactions, to see what's going on. And it's just going to give even less privacy and less, uh, less autonomy, which is the opposite of cryptocurrency. Sure. And, and just a bit on decentralization um, for anybody who's new or new to the concept, right, of like, I already alluded a little bit why big tech, you know, Facebook, they're, they're controlling us in so many different ways. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard this. I mean, just what came out with the whole thing on uh, eating disorders and anxiety and oh, yeah. um, depression in you know, women and, and all this, and they knew about it, um, covered it up, etc. But decentralization, right, like the ability to deplatform people. Um, mm -hmm. Look, I'm like, <laughs> we already know that I didn't like Donald Trump, but does one person, right, have the ability to kick off the president of the United States? states uh not sure that that's how social media should work um while there are still terrorists that, on twitter right so there's terrorists. that right and not to mention jack dorsey is the head of square and he can financially deplatform exactly. people so exactly. if he doesn't like your business or something right we saw this with only fans um mm -hmm. think what you want about uh people showing themselves uh, on, on a members only platform. But what happened was that these banks said, oh, does this have anything to do with pornography? Um, regardless of how soft or hardcore it was, no, they, and they decided, okay, no, we're not gonna, uh, we're not oh. gonna support that. And so OnlyFans, they pressured OnlyFans to try to kick off all these women who were making ends meet um, that way. And not only making ends meet, built huge businesses um, that way. And then they just kicked them off. So decentralization takes the power out of, out of just a couple people. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to chew on here. First of all, you know, um, so, so after Trump got banned from, from Twitter and Facebook, there was this whole push to like, let's create an impartial review board made up of lawyers and smart people to review it. But if it's all under the payroll of Facebook, there is no neutrality. That's the first thing. 
They're being paid, bought and paid for by Zuckerberg. And what that means to me is that he just has less accountability. He can say, oh, I didn't decide it. They decided it. But they're on his payroll. So what's the difference? You know, uh, the second thing is, you know, when it comes to OnlyFans, I, I think it's hilarious that there's any there shouldn't be any statement of morality around that. I mean, what are, what are we, what are we Christian, you know, uh, Quakers over here? Like, like what's the, you know, who are these banking? The bank executives are the ones that are patronizing prostitutes. Let's be honest, <laughs> you know, like, like, okay. Like, no, listen, you got these Robert Kraft motherfuckers, like the owner of the Patriots. Okay. And I just saw, you know, I think he's out of his hot water. He was just, he was just in heat like a couple of years ago for getting like a sucking fuck at a at a at a at a Miami at a Miami massage parlor. It's these people, these people who are some of the biggest consumers of the dirtiest, nastiest shit, and yet they're the ones who run the bank and say, "Oh, we can't have." These are all the guys who are paying for prostitutes while they have, you know, a wife and kids. Look, am I? There's no lies here, and you want to tell. <laughs> Only fans that can't operate? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, I don't and, even and know. Was, where do I even go from there? Yeah, there's no one. And, and only fans and only fans is acting like they want to clean up their act. Hey, listen, just so you guys are clear, you built your entire business off the backs of the adult industry. And now you want to say, oh, we're family organization. And I'm pretty sure they reversed it. They were like, oh, whoa, they that was a lot it. of black backlash. And now oh, it's, people got it's so cool. yeah. People got so pissed. You built, I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. Everyone knows that OnlyFans is a is a soft core, for the most part, uh, sex worker site, pay for play. So it's not going to be arts and crafts. That's Patreon, okay? This is the sex version of Patreon. You know, it's, it, it's, it's the facade of truth. And I think that's what this whole conversation is about in a lot of different areas. It's the facade of truth. Don't say one thing. And then do another thing because that makes me lose trust. I, I I couldn't agree more. And I mean, the aliens, the aliens, they've been telling there us there's no UFOs. They've been saying for 50 no years, U- they've been saying that. And now they're saying, oh, actually, there was. Sorry. What do you mean? But we're supposed to we're supposed to entrust in you yeah. now. With, uh, with- we're supposed to listen to you like you're telling us the truth. And, and, you know, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie, if you give a moose a muffin, if the if the government shows that, that that there's videos of the UFOs, what else are they not showing still? It's not like that's the end of it. You know, they, they just exactly. give us a little piece, you know. Exactly. I mean, it's just like in the very beginning of COVID when Fauci said, uh, sorry, with the masks. Uh, no, you guys don't need masks out there because I get it. He was trying. No, I don't even get it. I can't I can't excuse Poor leadership because he was trying to save them for the frontline workers because they were fucking unprepared. Right. I had N95 masks. You're telling us our frontline workers didn't have it just to be prepared. And I get everybody else was going to go buy them. You know? Yeah. You got to sit with it. I I want the facts. I really like Sam Harris's take on basically never, not basically, never lying. And it's just, if you want to be straightforward with people, you have to tell them the facts at all times. You can never compromise on this. Some people can't handle the fact, right? Especially masses of people, but you have to do better because if you always have that card in your back pocket, I'll just lie. Well, then, and it, your, your, your credibility completely erodes. I would, I would say that we don't give people enough credit for being able to handle taxes. You know what we're doing? 
when you lie to people, and I'm not saying I'm a perfect person, by the way, I'm not saying I never lie. I'm not saying I never have lied, but I understand it's a way of living that is extremely valuable for human communication, for personal, for personal well-being, for mental health. Not lying is so important. And when we lie to other people, a lot of times what we're trying to do is manage their emotions. We're predicting how they're going to react. So we're changing the way we present ourselves to affect the way that they act so that blowback doesn't come back on us. When really their emotions are not our responsibility. You know, our responsibility comes down to how we're presenting ourselves. As long as what we're saying and what we're doing are in alignment, then we can take that and say, here's what I have. What do you think? And that's the, that's our responsibility, you know? And, and I think that the government has never given us really the, I mean, you can't handle the truth. Everyone can handle the truth, but we've been conditioned to accept comfortable lies. My mom told me when the alien stuff came out, I think I told you this, I was laughing. She said, I would rather not know if there are aliens because it would be too scary. And I said, but how would that help anything though? Because they're still here. Even if it was scary, wouldn't you need to know that? And I think a lot of people feel like that though. If it's too scary, I don't want to know because it's emotionally draining or it creates the fear emotion. But that's part of the reason why this whole pandemic has happened and everything happens, you know? I couldn't agree more. That's an amazing point. And it comes back to what we were texting about last night, deflection of responsibility, because we've been so conditioned to let somebody else care for us. And we're not sovereign individuals. And unfortunately, our society especially raises women in this way where, oh, daddy will take care of you or, oh, you'll have a husband to take care of you. And, you know, I don't want my daughter to grow up like that. I want her to be able to handle her business. Uh, I want her to be independent, regardless of who's around her and, you know, what happens to me in the future, etc. So if we deflect our responsibility to the government, (laughs) this is going to sound crazy, but about aliens, Right. Like, whoa, I don't want to know. Let's just make sure the U.S. government takes care of me. I just want to walk around like not saying this about your mom, but like a sheep. Right. I just want to be in ignorance, uh, blissful ignorance, or I want to have my head in the sand or however you want to say it. That's okay. But, you know, if you don't know how to defend yourself personally in a confrontation because you think you're just going to be able to uh, rely on your significant other, or somebody in in Texas said, well, my neighbor's got guns. I should be okay. I was like, dude, you can't rely on your fucking neighbor's guns. (laughs) And uh, like, like that doesn't make any sense. And you you get into the defunding the police, which I don't think ever was a good idea, or at least extremely poorly Uh, It was a poor marketing plan. Um, I'm being facetious, but uh, yeah, poorly, poorly um, spun, right? For any type of social change, like, okay, so all of a sudden you're saying that if we call the police, they might not come because they're too busy or underfunded. Now what? So there's a lot, and and we just, that's, but that's how we are. We deflect responsibility to government, to corporations, to the doctors. I'll, I'll give you one more example because I, I can't be stopped right now, Daniel. He's on a tree. He's rolling. He's rolling ball moss. The, the 23andMe test uh, for early Alzheimer, right? I can't tell you how many people said, well, I would rather not know, right? And to me, and, and look, neurological diseases run in my family. My 
dad died of one and my grandfather died of one. I wanted to know so I could do everything in my power to be able to make myself healthy and have this much respect for my brain, for myself and for my family. So I can be around Mm -hmm. a long time. But if I want to deflect the responsibility to the healthcare system or to some doctor who you think is going to save you at that time, like you're just not really in touch with reality. No offense to anybody, but that's how I'm seeing things. And I'm going to be unapologetic about that. Well, I mean, in, in, in your, you're not truly owning your responsibility. You know, you're not truly owning your role in it. And, and you are the most responsible one for the outcome of your life. Even if you say, let, let's talk about, you know, you have a, a, a terminal, a quote, terminal illness like cancer, for instance, you can even say from a position there, you are responsible for that. Not that you are the cause of that, although lifestyle factors do contribute depending on how you're living your life, you know, but your where your responsibility comes in is how you respond to it, how you process it, and how you then affect the world because of that processing and response. That's where your responsibility comes into play. And um, I think that people, that, that responsibility is so heavy that we often will skirt it because it's easier to either like blame someone else or to not think about it or, you know, or to just get into the victim mode when the position of responsibility is the one that gives us the most power, you know, even if it's an uncomfortable level of responsibility. But think about it. We've been kind of, we've been kind of novocaned, you know, in the U.S. through comfort, through ease of access to things, through, um, you know, through a relatively period, through a period of relative stability, at least on the surface. Um, And that responsibility is a scary, scary thing to, to account for in our personal lives. Totally. That's why we keep printing more money because, well, we got to prop up the markets because we can't totally have irresponsible. things go down. It would be more responsible. Like you want to talk about debt ceiling. It's never, there's never been a ceiling to the debt. They've always raised it. So that's false. So wouldn't it have been more responsible to say, this is what our debt ceiling is. And if we reach it, then we're not going to actually create any more debt. We're going to figure out how to create more efficiency of our market to create a better gross domestic product and make more or cut some. You know, that would be the responsible choice. Now you're telling me you're going to turn around after this phone conversation and have that, have that same talk with Sarah when the credit card bill gets just a little too high, but that's well, not I, what people do, right? It's, I don't have the ability hard. to create unlimited debt though. You know, I have limits. Exactly. The government has no limits. Exactly. You yeah. Know? You don't, it's you like, don't have the money printer. Wouldn't that no, be nice? It's, it's, it's the fox watching the hen house. It's like, how can we really expect people who are printing the money to stop themselves when, you know, and also people, you know, with, again, I talked about, you know, people don't have a true perspective of scale. Look, if you're, if you're in your fifties or sixties and you're thinking like, I got 20 years max on this planet left, I'm just going to keep pressing the money printer. I don't care what happens because it makes my life comfortable while I'm here, you know, because you can get elected and your old crusty ass is going to be in Congress until you're 80 years old. Like some, what do you care? What do you care? You're always going to be on the inside of it. You're always going to know before things happen anyway. So just keep printing it, you know, and, and what does it matter? But it does no, matter. No, no better way to get reelected than send people helicopter money, right? And keep watch the stock market go up and tweet about it in all caps. Do, do you think Do you think that um, elected officials, like especially in Congress, should be able to legally invest in stocks? What do you think about that? Uh, good question. I think you probably need more transparency. That's my off the cuff answer. Because they're creating the policies that are that are making those rules. 
Sure. How is that not entire trading to a certain extent? Sure. And, and is it like, okay, you're going to go into politics and it's going to be like uh, entering a monastery where, where now you can't do any of these things, right? Like I, I actually like one-term politicians because they're there. They don't care who they piss off. They're there to get something done and yeah. they're not running again. Like, I think that's, I think that's great. We should have term limits and then you can go back to your business, you know? George Washington didn't want to keep going. They forced him to go twice, but he's like, I don't want, and even if you look at the way that the old Roman Republic was set up, you know, when they, whenever they had like a, like an emperor or a, a, the leader, they, he was only elected in a time of national strife, usually picked from, from the civilian population or often from the, from the warrior class. And after that was over, he left, you know, and it was only with the advent of Caesar which is why they called it, which is where the you know term SAR has come from, that that true dictatorship and emperorship was created because that became a lifelong position. And, uh, and you know, I think that there's like, especially in public office, there's a utility to someone going in with a certain viewpoint, going in, handling a job and getting out. I even think that extends to like, for instance, police. You want to talk about defunding the police, which I never thought was a good idea, because guess what? You might not like the way that police treat you uh, individually, there are, I mean, there are times when I don't want to be around police at all. You can look at all the bad press about police on the news, and there certainly is that, and it happens a lot. And if shit goes down at your house, you're calling the police. If someone's breaking in, you're calling the police. For the most part, you know, the average citizen is going to really use them. I think that there should be term limits on police careers because I think that it's such a stressful job, uh, and it, it's such a high, high stress, high anxiety, dangerous job that I think a lot of police officers snap after a certain period of time and they need to have, you know, mandatory wind down periods. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. That's, that's a fantastic idea. You know, it's like, um, I, I think that we should have people who are fresh, motivated, educated. Um, and I think that there also needs to be, I, I'm not even sure what the, what the screening process is for mental health. When you're talking about the police Academy, I know that the Academy is not that long. Uh, I know that it's not as long as, you know, any other types of professional careers, whether it's, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, like PhD, I think that there should be a much longer training period, a much stronger mental health evaluation, and a limit to how long you can do that job to create bumpers on both sides to screen candidates better. Because you and I both know, like, I don't know if you have any friends or family in the military, but a lot of people, a lot of cops are ex-military. Um, and people go into the military and the police force, not all, and maybe not most, but a certain percentage are going in there just to hurt people. And so we need to filter those people out a little bit better because there's a power grasp at the badge. And, you know, and so, so I think we need better, better rails on who is coming in and a better uh, and better care. And even if you look at the way that we treat veterans, which I'm sure isn't much different from the police, we don't give a shit about them after their service. They need better mental health treatment. They need better, you know, better position in society. Um, and, you know, I think that we could create an actual helpful police force. So it's not about defunding the police. That's not, it's like saying, oh, you know, um, uh, doctors aren't working because they're making a lot of mistakes in surgery. Defund doctors. No, no. Defund, defund airline pilots because they crash planes. No. You know, it's like, <laughs> how do we, how do we rehabilitate the police? Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, who had the, just the most uh, enlightened take on this and just being a black person and hmm. being around police was Rob Collier. You know what he said? Because I had oh, yeah. a, several long conversations with him while you know, all the Black Lives Matter stuff was going on. He said, man, every time I see, see a police officer try to do one thing, 
and that's be empathetic. And, and Rob, as a black man, that's what he said. And I was like, wow, you have so much to be angry about. And that's the way that you face it. And uh, I, yeah, I just thought that was, that was fantastic. Well, you know, it's a good point. And police officer like uh, Nassim Taleb has a good point about this. You know, when he talks about any any career. So Nassim Taleb wrote uh, Anti-Fragile, Black Swan, Cabal, the really great books. He's an economist. And he basically made the point that any career that you have that requires a certain uniform is going to be the most brittle. Because whether it's, uh, you know, um, you know the, the uniform of a doctor with the white coat or the police officer or the military officer, Anything, you know, you know, where it requires a standard appearance is brittle because that appearance is uh, an avatar for for the person and not the person. That is a, a that is an approximation that indicates characteristics. It's a, um, but but it's not it doesn't have any any real reach into the humanity of that person. So when we see their uniform, we're assigning all these characteristics to them based on you know, uh, culture based on media, based on personal experience, but we don't actually know that person and all that shit gets placed onto the uniform for good or bad. And, um, and the point that Nassim Taleb was making was that, you know, when you're stuck in that rigid pattern of being in a uniform, you often feel constrained because you can't act outside that pattern since that's the pattern that's been placed upon you. It's, you know, it's the avatar. And I think that's a lot, a lot of times why police will make very poor decisions. You know, and there's a lot to be said about it being a high stress job, but you see some of these decisions that are made, like, you know, there was one recently, a couple months ago, where this female police officer uh, thought she was, you know, reaching for her taser and she reached for her gun and killed somebody or all these different things happen. And you, you think, man, I wonder if, you know, and, and I'm sure that when you're in that, that uniform, it's almost like your personal human brain shuts off and you're only wearing the, you're only embodying the characteristics of that avatar. And I'm sure that there's, I'm sure that if we as a community had more empathy for not just police, but for anyone who's in these, especially these, these positions of public service, and we could see into their humanity, they would feel that. And I think it would soften their response as well. But, um, you know, we, uh, we're certainly having a hard time doing that. that. That's really interesting about the uniform. Yeah. And all, and it's especially tough for police officers because the world's preconceived notions and biases. Every time you see a cop, that's what you think of them, unfortunately. And yeah, super important to try to delineate in our in our everyday judgments between the person in the uniform and remember that, hey, that's a real person under there with real family. Person. And you know, this is, you know, this is the best job they that they, that they could get. And, you know, and God bless them, right? Like let's hope that they can get through get through because it's also a very dangerous job you know it's it is it's a very tough. dangerous job and it, it's it's kind of a a lot of times it's a thankless job too let's be honest totally you know totally everyone has shit to say about police but when they do their job no one's like oh my god thank you so much they're just like you know that's what you're supposed to do right they're um, not firefighters yeah they're not oh now i think firefighters that that's just now they're not going to get paid as much probably but man that's a sweet position no one's mad to see firefighters show up everyone's happy <laughs> right you know they get the big truck uh, now their, their job is dangerous too, but yeah, those guys are, or, or like my uncle's a paramedic. Everyone's happy to see the paramedic Absolutely. right over here, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. You get you some, know? sir, you get some real, uh, real service when you're a yeah, paramedic. You some, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, but, um, 
and that, and that's where I think the responsibility piece comes in mind. You know, we're talking about like personal responsibility. What you know, you're not responsible for what a police officer does to you, for instance, but you are responsible for how you react and how you're behaving. And it doesn't mean that you're going to prevent bad things from always occurring. But I think then that that personal responsibility also bleeds out into community responsibility. And I think that um, you know this constant war. You know, at least in, even if you just look at the black community, there's a constant tension between police and the community. And there's a there's a good reason for that. And you can look at the history of slavery that's connected to it. But at the same time, we have to take responsibility and say, okay, well, you know, if we're going to change, if, if we're going to change anything, we can only change ourselves. And how can we change our behavior to create better circumstances for us um, and and lead by example, you know, and doesn't mean that it's always going to turn out right. There's nothing George Floyd could have done in that particular instance to get the police officer off his neck. But there is maybe something that we can do as a community. Totally, totally. And again, reaching out to the other side of the aisle, it's it's hard. To, but and I don't mean the other side of the aisle. I mean, like, when's the last time we had conversations with police officers? Because not only did I reach out to my black friends during Black Lives Matter, right? I, I reached out to police officer friends as well. And by the way, I know several police officers who were nice guys. I know several more who were just the absolute most biggest assholes in high school. And oh, yeah. you can oh, see yeah. how that can carry on to what they do on a day-to-day basis. And might, maybe that sounds judgmental, but that's just my personal bias. But I realized a couple really cool guys uh, from jujitsu were cops. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. they're really cool too. So that's, you know, and I'm having a conversation, but without the uniform, I had no idea they were police officers right. until they mentioned it. Without the avatar. Well, I, you know, one of my close friends, uh, Bill Murphy, who just passed away in, in February, right before the ship popped off, uh, was a police officer. And, you know, one of the kindest guys you could know, and uh, he had brain cancer and he, you know, mm. he passed away pretty quickly. And, um, but, you know, I flew out there to go to Boston, which Boston in February is not fun. Let me tell you that. I was out there in Boston. And, you know, I thought this, I don't care that he was a police officer. I have no bias over that. It's just my friend. And, you know, all of his, all of his uh, coworkers were there and they were today on the radio. They said, you know, Officer Murphy, your last patrol is here. They're shooting off the guns because it was like a police funeral. Plus, it was a Catholic funeral. So it was wow. very ceremonial. In you know? Boston. Yeah, that's yeah, in Boston. special. It was Irish Catholic police funeral in Boston. So wow. it was like some Martin Scorsese shit. And they had like the they had the bagpipes and the kilts and all that stuff. And it was very emotional. And it was, you know, and there was all different types of people there. It wasn't just old white guys. It was black guys and, you know, and, and men, women, children, all, and all came to pay their respects to Bill because he was a good, good guy. He was a good example of this. And so, yeah, you know, but I think that if we, again, kind of like tying all this together, looking at, for instance, you're in the, you're in the supermarket and you, you know, are uh, seeing other people who are also dealing with this pile of fear, you know, having empathy and compassion for them. Um, you're seeing people who are, you know, who are stressed out in the world and rather than like either antagonizing them or wanting to prove that you're right, trying the empathetic approach, which is just saying, yeah, you know, tell me more about that. Like being willing to listen, being willing to hear. And that I think is what is, is not as, as popular because social media is a place of sound bites, of antagonism, of, uh, of views. And a lot of times empathy doesn't create th- that response. Totally. Yeah. That's not outrage culture. That doesn't no, get as many culture. likes. Damn. You no, know, 
I'd like, like I put up on, on Instagram, I said, you know, and we can talk about this in a second, like Facebook and Instagram were down for about six hours, which was their longest blackout since 2008. And I personally think that uh, Mark Zuckerberg ate a poison pill. I think that they're hiding some shit, but I, I put up on my, on my IG, ironically, of course, that I loved when Facebook and Instagram were down because it felt like a cancer was in remission for six hours. And someone under that posted, uh, that's disrespectful to cancer victims. And I said, you know, this cancel culture though, of like anything you say right. that's stepping on my line is now offensive. And it's, but, but I then I said, Oh, okay. I under, I understand like, yes, sorry. <laughs> Maybe this person is super sensitive and we're talking about cancer. And I mean, look, right. I, I try to not be too woke. I try to understand again, what, what offends those people. And uh, I think I've been pretty damn politically correct on here uh, today while still trying good. to say what I what I feel and articulate my thoughts without pissing too many people off. Um, but man, yeah, again, it's just like, really, it, it's all about cancer culture and, and freedom of speech is being eroded. There's no no two cent, no, no doubting that. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. Look, Daniel, I know we've been going for like an hour. If I am going to be bl- blessed to go to jujitsu tonight by my wife, go. I better get downstairs and start helping go. out. It's We're coming up on bath time. We're coming up on dinner it. time. It's like do so it. many fun things ahead. I, we could go for two, three hours, I'm sure. But can we please do Well, not like we don't talk. Well, look, the, the next part of this uh, after this show is going to be uh, just straight fighting, just straight jujitsu talk. And the part two will be how to get your wife or husband to train. That'll be part two. Uh, which okay. I haven't mastered yet. So if we can figure that out together, then we'll do another show. Uh, much love, Matt Wilson. We'll put uh, links to your relevant stuff in the comment or in, in the descriptions. We'll mail this out and we'll speak to you soon. Always a pleasure. That was fun, man. I very much hope you enjoyed that podcast with Matt Wilson, one of my favorite guys on the planet and we actually have so much to talk about. I'm sure there'll be a round two at some point. If you wanna see more of what Matt's working on in his business life, make sure you check out under30experiences.com, which is an incredible site that puts together immersive trips all around the world. And even now, they're still up and running. Travel is up and ready to go. And I bet you wanna get out of the house too. So make sure you check it out. And if you want more updates on what we're talking about on The New Wave Entrepreneur, and what guests we're bringing on, what things we're dropping, make sure you check out my website as well alphamentorship.com. That's where you can get all the latest info. Much love to you guys. The water is warm. The tide is rising. Now jump on to the new wave and I'll see you next week.